Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it At Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's headquarters offices in St. Paul, Minnesota, for roughly the last two hours, uh, about, I don't know, well, there were like 15 online, Brent, is that about right? 15 biologists across yep. the country online, another, let's say 15 here in the office, we've gathered um, biologists from across the country, our executive leadership team, um, heads of departments, to watch a movie, well, sort of. We watched episode four of a four-part documentary series called Roots So Deep. With the subhead, very interesting subhead, you can see the devil down there. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit too. But the, as the film's trailer articulates, let me read this for you. This is a big old research project about farmers and scientists who are figuring out if the way cattle are being grazed can actually help solve climate change. And in the process of looking for common ground between farming and science, the common ground is the dirt right beneath our feet. And I'm just going to run out the spoiler alert for our audience (laughs) right away. What they found is a massive, absolutely gigantic opportunity for bobwhite quail and all grassland birds. So that is why we are going to dive deep into Roots So Deep, four-part documentary, and we are blessed to have with us the director, the visionary. What's what's the right title for you, Peter? Um, uh, well, it's nice to be here. Uh, I'm director and producer of the film. My wife's producer of the film, and her name is Chris Nabik. And I'm the uh, PI of the science team. PI. Principal investigator. Okay. No, not not PI. private. I know. <laughs> yeah, That's I'm wearing a tiger's hat. I'm the, yeah. I'm the PI of conservation. The <laughs> there you go. PI of conservation. <laughs> it's, a, it's a term that I didn't know before I got into science work. Uh, I'm not a scientist at all, but I'm sort of helping to lead the science team and help do the fundraising for this project. So that's, I just call it a wrangler of scientists. (laughs) Which is true. It's right all over the website. So, so we have uh, Peter with us and we have for making your podcasting debut, I believe, at least on our podcast. With you. Yeah, sir. Yeah. uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's very own Brent Rudolph, our director of sustainability um he also has a tiger's hat on today so this is your detroit tigers fan club episode. <laughs> <laughs> all two of the, us we've got the home and the road versions of tigers caps here <laughs> yes, for you, you Peter. Yes, they're you not did. as bad as we anticipated them being at the fourth of july <laughs> um well let's start brett since it is your first time on our podcast yeah y- y- give us um a few-minute introduction to who you are so we can bring our listeners along with the intersection here for us. You bet. Well, yeah, first of all, it's good to be on. I know we've talked a couple times about 
trying to uh, bring some perspective on what we're doing with sustainability partnerships, um, you know, into the podcast. And this is a really great opportunity for it. So I, I do, did know what that version of PI means. Uh, I picked that up along the way of uh, 13 some years of science education from the degrees that I've picked up over my career. So I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist by training and background. Um, but I'm working a little different here with the uh, Director of Sustainability Partnerships. The goal is really to take, you know, we, we've said for years as an organization that wildlife habitat, the habitat we build for pheasants and quail and pollinators and other wildlife, um, provides what, you know, what ecologists or scientists would say are ecosystem services, right? It, it filters water to make it cheaper than having to do all that water filtration with, um, infrastructure with physical infrastructure uh it helps reduce runoff and erosion uh and increasingly of interest is it sequesters carbon you know a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of folks look at trees and planting trees as a climate solution um right there's that big volume of trees up above the ground but um grasses grasslands in mm-hmm. particular store a lot of carbon in the soil also the crossover what we're talking about here so anyway, that's my goal is to try and take our team that has great capacity to get habitat done, make more birds, and uh, kind of sell that program to folks that might not really care or even know what pheasants or quail are, but they want to see those other outcomes. So anyway, I've been in that role about two years, Bob, as you know. Um, originally, I was born and raised in Northeast Ohio. But I've lived in Michigan for over two decades and raised a couple kids, got a, two daughters, and uh, married. Yeah, so just to clarify, yeah. you're emotionally conflicted being born in Ohio and living in Michigan. You know, not so much. Um, <laughs> I never say I'm a Buckeye because when I grew up, that wasn't really the thing to be a Buckeye, you know, statewide as much as it is now. And uh, But I don't know if baseball for me in particular, I know we could we, – Peter, we might have to talk about baseball the whole rest of the time if we get started <laughs> with Bob. But I'll just take a nap, and you guys wake me yeah. up when you're done. <laughs> for me, it was like about cheering for the hometown team, right? Yeah. And so when I moved to Michigan, um, I kind of adopted the the uh, Tigers. That was yeah. one of the. And you're a Spartan. I am a Spartan. Um, my uh, my talented and and uh, way married above wife um, is a employee at Michigan State University. Uh, so we got a lot of connections to campus. I did um, worked for the Michigan DNR for about 18 years before moving into nonprofit, and a lot of that involved research and working with folks cool. at Michigan State, but other institutions as well. Um, and so, a setter owner. Yeah, I also am a setter owner. I shared with you before we had a, a pandemic litter born on the day that our home locked down mm-hmm. a little over three years ago. So uh, we have a I have an uh, eight-year-old and a three-year-old uh, setter at home, that litter, a whole litter of pups. We had two kids, my wife and I, uh, with six pups and a mama dog um, on lockdown, uh, watching them all grow up literally every day. It was a unique experience. But yeah, I uh, love, love following the setters through the woods often in Michigan, but uh, do a variety of travel hunting and, and uh, really all kinds of upland bird pursuits over those dogs is uh, my passion. I tinker in a lot of it. So as we transition to introducing Peter, I don't know this story, the Genesis story of how you guys met. So maybe that that's a good way to introduce Peter. How'd you guys connect in it initially? So... We have a, uh, a member and a supporter of uh, Quail Forever and Pheasants Forever um, that actually I don't really know how he came across 
Peter's project. Hmm. Uh, but he provided some backing as talking as, Brad. Yeah, yeah, Brad Bradley. Oh, as you okay, were getting out ready of to Kansas, do, yep. featured in our um, Call the Uplands campaign. Yeah, Absolutely. So, so wow. one of my executive producers, Stuart Brown, must have met Brad at a TNC event. Okay. And Stuart was talking about the film. He said you should call Peter to Brad. Brad reached out. I sent him. <clears throat> I sent him episode one, and he was hooked. Mm. Of, of Roots So Deep, you mm-hmm. can see the devil down there. And then Brad came to a screening we had in Louisville. So he came and saw all four episodes at the Speed Museum. Wow. Uh, that was last October. And uh, and he's one of our supporters. He's helping this rollout, this okay. promotion that we're doing right now. And the quail connection strikes again, yeah. which we'll learn about throughout this conversation. Yeah. God bless him. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, so... Um, through a couple of different channels, uh, Brad connected Peter and I together. We had a few different conversations along the way, um, from airports and zooms from home and other things until yeah. we kind of connected on as this is growing, you know, gaining momentum. Um, and finally met in person, uh, well, just last week yeah. in Chattanooga and then again here in Minnesota uh, today. So in, without in the, further ado, tell us about Peter, like your background when you Google, you know, Lord of the Rings pops up, music pops up. Like, uh, you've been on the Bill Maher show. I mean, my goodness, how'd you end up at Pheasants Forever and Quail Friends? <laughs> it's a natural progression. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Anyone well, would have well, come here. <laughs> um, so the Lord of the Rings context is I was an editor on a lot of the making of you know, like on DVDs, you'd have the making ofs. Okay. And so I cut the making of the third film on that big seven disc box set. So that's, huh. that's what that connection is. Nice. It was, it was a good gig. And, um, Bill Maher, uh, from our film Carbon Nation, mm-hmm. uh, we got on twice actually. And, um, uh, and that was very cool. I, I enjoyed the time and, um, and that's actually, we used a little clip of the second time I was on Bill Maher on, uh, at the beginning of yep. Roots So Deep, when we're trying to figure out who the hell I am, why yep. am I talking about yep. cattle and science and all that stuff? Um, because so I, your background is, I mean, you don't have a biology degree, right? Correct? No, I do not. I have a, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Film and Video mm-hmm. from California Institute of the Arts. So I'm an art school graduate and um, spent 26 years in L.A. after that, or during and after that. Where, where, where'd you grow up? Born in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. Born and raised. Which is why uh, Gorgie Jang came up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who we loved back in Louisville, and we were uh, happy to see him have a... He had a pretty good career up here. Mm-hmm. He did well. Um, one of my favorite moments with Gorgie is when he hit a last-second shot against Virginia. Louisville, when we joined the ACC, we've lost to Virginia... I think we beat them once, maybe huh. twice in uh, ten years. So him beating, he did a nice. It was a nice shot at the free throw line, and uh, he told the coach that he practiced that all the time. The coach said he had never seen him practice that <laughs> shot. We were talking Patino, right? Yeah, Patino. that was Patino. Older Patino, yeah. Yeah, not 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 the young Rick Patino who right? got who your was Gophers. Also here. Yeah, who got your Gophers going for a little bit. Um, so yeah, born and raised in Louisville, big Louisville Cardinals fan. Basketball is the sport that I'll. Not stop talking about. Hmm. All right. That's um, the next digression in sports. And we'll do that digression. <laughs> um, was raised with a standard poodle since okay. we're talking dogs. Yeah. Uh, my dog, Yankee, was born on the 4th of July. We got him when I was a year and a half old. Huh. And he died when I was 16. Wow. So I had him for a long time. Yeah. He was a hunter. Yeah. And he was strong. He got hit 
twice by a car and once by a school bus. Come on. <laughs> Not kidding. Not kidding. Twice by a car and Different cars, different school bus. Uh, over his career, uh, he, his favorite food was three-week-old squirrel. Ground okay. buried. Wow. And he only liked to eat it when he was downwind from me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> he didn't like it when the wind wasn't blowing right at me while I was shooting baskets. So that's that's Yankee. And then yeah. I had years of cats, and now we have a, a Labradoodle uh-huh. who's absolutely insane. Uh. <laughs> Her name's Pearl. She's crazy. Um, but she's, she's, a good, she's a good egg. She just doesn't like going out in the world. Yeah. She just wants to stay home. Um, so, yeah, so, so my film career... I've, I've always been focused on the environment one way or another. Um, and the last big film I made was called Carbon Nation, which is about solutions to climate change. And then that's when I started focusing on soils, and that's when I started focusing on grazing mm-hmm. as a solution. And we made 10 short documentaries. It's all called the Carbon Cowboys mm-hmm. series. Um, and those are at carboncowboys.org, our site that sort of holds everything that we'll be talking about and What today. year was were those? Those made? films were from 2013 to 2018. Okay. And so that was when we were putting together the science team that's in Root So Deep and fundraising, developing the research. And then we got out. We shot the last one in April of 2018, and we were out in the field filming this documentary series in, in May. Hmm. And so, uh, so the first, the last of the ten was being edited while I was out filming. Okay, so I see the progression a little bit. It, yeah, that, that carbon cowboys, cowboys yeah. led to roots so deep. Yeah, it all yeah. sort of filters in. the The ten films were all sort of me getting on farms and ranches and learning mm. and seeing what's working for these farmers, which was substantial. So every time, every day, I've spent looking at what we call AMP grazing, adaptive multi-paddock grazing. So slow, yeah. adaptive multi-paddock. multi-paddock grazing. Put that into layman's terms. Sure. Um, it's basically uh, replicating the way the bison moved across the Great Plains, right? And so the bison would hit an area. They would naturally eat about half of mm-hmm. the forage, stomp down the rest, and leave. And then that area would rest for a year, maybe, maybe longer. And it's that heavy hit munching down the forage and then stomping down the rest, all the fertilizing that happens with the urine and the poo from the bison would then stoke up photosynthesis in a major way. And as those plants grow, they're drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere. They're burping out the oxygen for us to breathe and they're sucking down the carbon to feed the soil microbial system. So that whole system is how we had 15 foot deep topsoils here where we sit in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. right? And, um, and obviously since 1492, that system has been hurt and hurt and hurt and hurt when the bison were all killed off by the 1870s to prevent the entire group of people that lived here before 1492, uh, from living, it destroyed the ecosystem Mm -hmm. here. The bison were fantastic land managers. And so what farmers have discovered is if they replicate that movement on their farm, whether their farm's 40 acres or 40,000 acres, get their animals in a herd. Usually just folks are doing one herd, mm-hmm. except for in the birthing season, you know, when, when you want to keep your young ones separated for a bit, and then you bring them in. And you move them around sort of adaptively to what your farm's needs are, or what your farm's production is, how much forage do you have, did it rain a lot last week or mm-hmm. not. Where do you want to be on your farm? How big do you want the paddocks? How long do you want to stay in there? But for the most part, 
amp grazing is, you know, we're seeing daily moves sort of east of the 100th meridian, you know. Yeah. So when we're, we're 100th meridian, we talked about like, like San Antonio Texas, through the Dakotas, Dakotas up yep. into Canada. Like the, it, for bird hunters, they know the break of the Missouri River. Okay. Right? West of the Missouri River, it, very arid climate. Yep. Yep. East of the Missouri River, very lush yep. and, you know, birds galore. Yeah. Historically. And, and over the last century, I think that that line of, of wetness is moving, mm-hmm. is moving east. There's getting more and more dryness coming towards the east. Okay. Like it might be at the 98th meridian now or 97th mm-hmm. or something like that. And, um, and so this, this type of grazing is what caught my attention because I'm looking at solutions to climate change and are these folks drawing down enough carbon to slow it down, mm-hmm. right? Not to stop it, but to slow it down. And then it very quickly... Uh, as I was meeting a lot of scientists and as I went out, I got hired by Arizona State University in 2013. So I'm teaching out there and I'm all, you know, my life in academia has begun. I'm not an <laughs> academic, but uh, meeting a lot of people who are. <laughs> and, and seeing that, uh, you know, you can't just measure carbon when you're looking at the greenhouse gases on a farm. You've got to measure the methane and the nitrous oxide as well. Like, you've got to know those three gases to really understand, is this a greenhouse gas sink? Is it slowing down climate change? Is it cooling the earth? Or is it a source? Is it speeding up climate change? Is it warming the earth? And so cattle have been given a pretty, pretty starkly bad name based on uh, a lot of assumptions and a lot of uh, some data um, on the methane emissions but the carbon emissions haven't really been measured very thoroughly. Hmm. And so our team got together to ask the simple questions, can amp grazing, you know, make the land better and make the farmer more money? That was our basic question. And then for me, it's can amp grazing help slow down climate change? Mm-hmm. Can grazing itself, what, what, is it better, worse than conventional grazing where the animals are left in, in a paddock that might be one-seventh of a farmer's land or one-half of a farmer's land or a quarter of a farmer's land for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And, and, and the resulting forage height, the amount of forage is much, much less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what our research is all about. And the documentary that we're here talking about is all about the farmers that we studied in the southeast U.S. and all about the f- scientists who've come down to measure on these farms. So, I, I, I want to backtrack just because I'm sure I'm your guest. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure <laughs> listeners are like, okay, the, like three minutes ago, the guy's talking about Lord of the Rings, <laughs> right? And you're 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 helping do movies and art background, basketball. And, well, basketball. And, then, <laughs> and then you take the leap to the Carbon Cowboys film. So right. you obviously have interest in climate change, interest in the environment. Mm-hmm. Help me understand, was there a moment that, uh, uh, you know, a watershed moment for you where mm-hmm. your career changed, your awareness changed, or was it just, no, this is just a natural progression. Like, wh- like what happened yeah. that shifted your paradigm? Yeah, for me, uh, my parents, we hiked all the time hmm. uh, when I was a kid. Uh, if I littered in the woods, that was a big deal. I got taught lessons about that. One particular lesson was... Uh, I was on this creek bed trail at this place called Bernheim Forest outside of Louisville. And this, cre- this trail is called Rocky Run. It's called Rock Run, but we always called it Rocky Run. And it's a creek bed. 
and there's probably a million to two billion stones. Mm-hmm. And we had a sandwich. I had a little baggie, and I put my baggie underneath a rock. And I was three or four, and my dad said minutes later, where's your baggie? And I said, I put it under a rock. He goes, go find it. Mm-hmm. That's not what you do. Mm-hmm. And I spent however much time he thought I needed to spend to learn the lesson, which littering's bad, mm-hmm. right? And you left no stone unturned. I left <laughs> as many unturned as I, I found a few salamanders along the way, but I didn't find the baggie mm. ever. And my mom would absolutely stop on country roads and kick us out of the car to go pick up trash. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so that's the family I grew up in, love of nature, uh, and so whenever we got a chance to be out in nature, get to a national park, we were there as I grew up. And so the film I made to get into film school was all about nature and then humans kind of getting in the way of nature. Mm-hmm. And this is the garbage? No, this was it, a film I made to get into film school. Okay. And then a few years after film school, I started a film called Garbage, which was about garbage problems across the U.S. And then um, in those years where I was doing all that DVD behind-the-scenes editing work, I also covered the Sundance Film Festival for the Louisville Courier-Journal as a journalist. Just mm. as, and I gravitated towards the documentaries because they were just so stellar. At Sundance, you could get a good or bad narrative film, a regular film, right? But the documentaries were all always solid, mm-hmm. like great. Mm. And so I was at the world premiere of An Inconvenient Truth, and I didn't know about climate change, and this was 2006. Huh. I mean, I'm someone who... Cl- Turns off the light when I leave a room. Mm-hmm. I don't litter. You know why. And um, <laughs> a friend of mine's dad went through some bad times in the late 70s and told us to all turn off the water when we brush our teeth because mm-hmm. he didn't want to pay for it. But it turns out that was a really good idea. So I do those things. I just didn't know about climate change. Interesting. And so when I saw that film and it backs up the data t- at that point, I'm like, well, what can we do about it? And mm-hmm. so that's when I decided to make a film about solutions to climate change and so that was a pivot for me like focusing mm-hmm. on solutions and uh we put a team together and in 2007 we started filming that and and uh that film came out in 2011 and in the making of that movie and then in the release of that movie i was on the road for three years with it is what focused me on soils and focused me on okay on grazing so that's the the trajectory yeah. the, pro- the progression I think about, so I've very recently here in the last two weeks watched the four films. Mm-hmm. And this is, I, I'm guessing this will be a para, uh, an analogy you haven't heard before, but I've, I've often thought bird hunting and conservation hunting needs a river runs through it to have happen for that film, what that did to romanticize and create love. For around fly fishing. Uh-huh, right, right. While this film isn't about bird hunting, this mm-hmm. film does romanticize and create a love around grazing, and it, it illustrates the... Ca- I mean, there's tears in the, the ranchers, the producers, landowners' eyes when they're learning about the results of the work that's been done on their land to illustrate how they can do things better. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, I give you all the credit in the world for bringing something. When you think about these guys are talking a four part documents, documentary about cattle grazing, (laughs) 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 right? Like on its surface, you know, you see the irony there, right? I mean, it's like, but 
there, it's it's and one there's of those crying involved. In yeah, the middle there, it's but. like that uh, <laughs> 1980s um, movie trailer. I laughed, I cried. It was a triumph of the human spirit. You remember that? <laughs> I don't. Actually, yeah, I, I laughed during this uh, open, like in our yeah. filming or our our screening here. <laughs> there were three moments where the crowd uh, at Pheasants Forever busted out laughing. Oh yeah, which makes I gotta believe as the filmmaker makes your heart sing. You love it, right? I cried. Yep. I had tears in my eyes. Yep. Uh, and it I get tears around, in my eyes. And it revolved around quail. Yep. And it was a triumph of the human spirit through science. So Yeah, so so just to give the listeners a little bit of context. So what we did as a science team is we came up with as many metrics as we could afford and the metrics that we thought would be good indicators of health or lack thereof on these farms. So we measured soil carbon and nitrogen. We measured water infiltration, the forage production and the nutrient density of the forage being produced for the animals to eat, uh, bird uh, biodiversity and population, uh, bugs, biodiversity and population, microbial life, um, greenhouse gas cycling, animal well-being, and farmer well-being. Those it, were the eight. And you measured those eight yeah. me, um, traits yeah. through a compare and contrast. So explain. Yeah, so, it, so what we... Yeah, go ahead. So the design is that we'd have the adaptive multi-paddock farmer on one side of the fence. Like literally on yeah. one side of the fence. And we'd have neighbors. their neighbor on the other side of the fence who are conventionally growing their cattle, doing it the way that is normally done in their county and state. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and so we have five farm pairs in the southeast U.S. One pair in South Central Kentucky, one pair in, in sort of southeastern Tennessee, two in northwestern, north sorry, northeastern Alabama, and then one pair in Mississippi, just above Baton Rouge. And we studied those farms for years. Uh, we got to meet the farmers. And it was really clear when we started filming. I started filming when the science team was coming out. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear that the farmers were going to be the lead characters in the documentary mm-hmm. and that the scientists would be supporting characters. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how it's panned out. Uh, we've got to know these farmers as friends mm. um, uh, for years now. And so we studied the birds. Mm-hmm. And the birds turned out to be a very strong indicator of wildlife health on these farms. They are an indicator species of wildlife health but they also were a big motivator for the farmers who were very happy when they had the grassland birds on their land Mm -hmm. and were very unhappy if we found out they didn't Mm -hmm. and it turned out that the amp farmers did and the conventional farmers didn't Mm -hmm. and so that was a big eye-opening experience for the conventional farmers where they realized wow we're not getting as much water infiltration. We don't have as many birds. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Our farm, our neighbors are growing more cattle than we are. So th- it wasn't about anyone doing anything wrong. And we made sure that that was very clear to the farmers. That wasn't our intention. Even if they thought it themselves, why are you studying on our land? It was, we think we found a way of grazing that could save you time, money, and make you more money as well because your land could be more productive do you want to join us on this journey of science and and be a part of this and they all said yes 
it, you talked about those, it, Brent, I'm going to use your term, ecosystem services. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Soil, water, wildlife. Yeah, what, what do these pollinating insects do? So if you have a lot of pollinating insects on your land, that's great. Mm-hmm. But there's a good chance some of those insects are going to be going across the fence on the neighbor's land as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a good chance that those mm-hmm. pollinating insects are going to be going over to your neighbor's land as well. What are they doing for you, mm-hmm. right? If your land is healthy, are you having a knock-on effect in, to your neighbor's land? Mm-hmm. If your water cycle's strong, how's that affecting your neighbor? If your land's not flooding in an eight-inch rain over a night, is your neighbor's land not flooding as much? And, of course, what, what, what Brent was just saying that I think about a lot is in a watershed, mm-hmm. if all the farmers are cleaning up their, their runoff, right, they're getting c- ground cover, you know, cover crops and, and keeping their soils covered so the water's infiltrating into their soils, and if it is washing off, it's clean, not full of dirt, mm-hmm. not full of chemicals. When it gets down to that water treatment plant at the city downstream, is that water treatment plant spending a lot less money cleaning the water because the farmers upstream are doing a great job of stewarding their land. Mm -hmm. And that's an ecosystem service that people are trying to figure out how can we get some of that money to the farmers. To me, I think it's pretty simple. You have the data for the water water treatment plant. You know how much they've been spending. If they save money, give the farmers part of that savings, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, and so ecosystem services is a, it's, it's a new world and everyone's, a lot of people are looking at that, trying to crack that nut. That's it. idea is the ecosystem is providing that service for you. Mm-hmm. If it's not, you've got to construct and pay for and maintain and operate a different way to do it, to sure. clean your water back up. So you're better off letting the natural system do a big chunk of that work and saving yourselves a lot of. It's good business. to find another way to get it so, done. Yeah. So that was really apparent throughout the films, right? The, this is a science project, and there's a measurement of very specific data points that you're after. But a critical component that you have in here is the so- sociological and the financial component. Mm-hmm. Because, you it's know... people. It, right. Because <laughs> if you're not a farmer or producer, like... Thank you for staying with this podcast for so long, right? Because <laughs> it, it, it's very easy to turn it off. It, it, but, but everybody eats. Everybody eats. And, right? and, but also from a farmer's perspective, like, one thing that was a recurring theme, every producer in this film farms, but then it, they also have an off-farm job. An, so talk yeah. about that component. Yeah, well, I, I, what it says is that farming's not going to pay all your bills. But it says people love people who do farm love it so much mm-hmm. that they will put a put that anchor on their own finances to keep that farm going, just to have the opportunity to work on the land. And so, from my perspective, as a consumer of food and a human being, and I don't want farmers to be in debt. Mm-hmm. I want them to be making food, not cutting corners. And so why are farmers making so little money that they can't afford to, uh, to pay their bills without actually having an off-farm job? And one of our farmers spoke perfectly about why he has an off-farm job. He needs health insurance. And so mm-hmm. could the USDA provide farmers in the new farm bill with health insurance? Yeah. Right? That would be a really cool thing. So you floated that concept 
um, within our group You're here. Just talking it, about it, yeah. Is that something you floated anywhere else? I'm, no one's asking me. Well, lo- right. So <laughs> it, it's a, so because I'm not a lobbyist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, a lawmaker. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not a policymaker. I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And and our job is uh, to record, disseminate. If it's to educate mm-hmm. or just share knowledge, and that's a piece of knowledge I'm sharing right yeah. now with you all, um, because that's make, what it makes sense. It makes it financial viability of a farmer. Yeah means that they stay on the farm rather than it being taken over, whether it's um, urban sprawl or, yep. you know, big yeah, conglomerate, totally. right? Like a local farm, uh, farmer who loves that property mm-hmm. and loves to see the wildlife. And they love, I have, every farmer I've met loves their land. Mm-hmm. The, that, that, that's a fallacy that I, I mean, I don't know, I'm not going to call it a fallacy, but every farmer I've met loves their land. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some farmers out there who don't. I don't know. but I have never met one either. There you go. So, so if a farmer loves their land and then we show up with, with science and data that says, Here how you can, here's how you can love your land more. Mm-hmm. And did you know that your land could do more for you? And more could, profitable. It could be more profitable. It could cost you less money to run it. You could produce more food. You could produce two or three times the amount of cattle on your land with the same rainfall mm-hmm. just by changing the method of grazing. That's pretty interesting. And it's interesting how some people assume farmers don't want data. They don't want to know data. And I just have also found every farmer I've met loves to know data about their farm. They just can't afford to do it themselves. It's mm-hmm. expensive. Um, but they're very interested and and what's going on if if you can get them that data right mm-hmm. so if you all can give bird counts to farmers i'm sure that has an impact i'd bet a million bucks that has an impact um but farmers in debt it's a big story it's 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 an anchor it's a weight on our society mm-hmm. i would venture to say yeah uh the third there's different groups that have high rates of suicide the group with the highest rate of suicide are first responders mm. The group with the second highest rate of suiciders are oil and gas workers. The group with the third, third highest rate of suicide in the U.S. are farmers. Hmm. And one of the leading causes of those farmer suicides is debt. Yeah, financial strain. Right? And in England, it's the second leading. They're the second. It's the second. It's the group with the second farmers highest are. rate. Yeah. yeah. And, and that just bothers me. Yeah. Well, that's part, you know, so... In that, under that heading of sustainability mm-hmm. and Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, building more sustainability partnerships. Sustainability has an environmental, a social, and an economic component to it. Good yeah. point. So yeah. we we can relate um, organizations like ours because we see a lot of similar factors going against hunter recruitment mm. and retention. You know, as, as we are less of a rural society, more of an urban society, it's hard to get folks the exposure to and get an interest in hunting. It's similar to farming you talk about folks dealing with the crippling you know debt and challenges of operating that financially and now do you want to pass it on to your kids right or do your kids want to take it on if they a lot see of them what you don't. struggle with a lot of those kids don't and so we we as an organization bob as you know i think i've done a pretty good job of saying that um we love it when there's a, a farmer or a recreational landowner or whatever that says i want to do something good for wildlife i got money you know, we could do whatever. What sure. do you got for me? Sure. And those folks certainly will will use uh, grants and other forces sources of support. Excuse me to get their work done. Um, but we need to be able to reach folks 
as you said, farmers do care about their land. No it's question. not that they don't. It's not that they don't like to see wildlife, you know, sometimes certain wildlife and crop damage and other things are issues, but they like it. They appreciate, they have that connection, especially mm -hmm. many of them as quail came out in the film, remember when they used to see them around, they don't see them around as much anymore. Right. So they, they have that, but we have to reach out to them about saying, we want you to be financially successful right. when you're operating in an environmentally responsible way. And Hey, we want to make more <laughs> pheasants, quail, pollinators, and wildlife. So it can be the same practices we're trying to get folks to be open to, but it's about approaching them in a way that gets more down to the fundamental decision. If it's not something that they can sustain economically, it's not going to be able to last yeah, in their yeah, operation yeah, around yeah. the landscape. And what we say in the film is the risk, the, the apparent risk or the perceived risk is changing changing from a conventional grazing to a amp grazing, right? But the real risk is not changing because the climate is changing. Mm -hmm. You can argue about why, um, but it is changing. And I don't personally think that there's much reason to argue about it. It's the change is happening. And, um, and if the farmers are working with nature as opposed to fighting nature, they're going to be in a better condition to to live through these changes, be much more resilient and much more profitable. Mm -hmm. And I want farmers to be profitable. And if a byproduct of them being profitable and working with nature is that there's uh, grassland bird repopulation on their land, that sounds like a pretty good situation. So I'm sorry. Were I you was just going to say the other thing that I thought, you know, picking up from different pieces, um, change is a risk. Also, you know, there's so many pressures on farmers and on agricultural communities, rural communities. And you, the, the film does a great job of reflecting the multi-generational farm tensions, right? Mm -hmm. Families can be difficult. It can be hard to deal with change. Kids can have a hard time getting their older generations to embrace it. I feel like there's something here, Bob, that, that again, hearing quail, hearing sometimes those folks literally on the other side of the fence <laughs> as we talked about were saying one of the one of the quotes he had quail it made me mad right so this is a, a traditional grazer <laughs> that's a diehard quail hunter that is admitting he was kind of mad and jealous although he said but it was good to hear it i like to hear it so you're taking he me wants to see it on his land as well right mm -hmm. but i think that helps break it down right you, you might change things you might be giving up the way you used to do things you might be questioning um you know the way we always did it does it feel like i'm giving up am i caving in but if part of what you're getting back mm -hmm. is something you lost mm -hmm. and that whistle of quail is so iconic right i think i can ease that transition i'm do i'm doing things differently but i'm also getting the, the land back to the way it was yes before all these other pressures really impacted wildlife around me. Mm -hmm. So you brought me exactly where I want to go. So <laughs> you, you, you quoted episode four. Um, it, there, there's a quail component throughout, but it hit me like a jackhammer in episode three. Um, there's a one-minute section where Teddy Gentry, who's a member of the band Alabama. Mm -hmm. Bass player. Bass player. Singer. And we're hearing quail whistle, mm -hmm. Bob White, right, mm -hmm. in the background. 
And Peter, you say this quote from episode three, I didn't know quail were going to be a part of this. I really didn't. Mm-hmm. But it was. It became it became one of the central themes, at least, yeah. you know, watching it through my eyes. Yeah. No, it does. Central theme in, in, in by episode four. Like, Front and center. Yeah, it really was. It was a star yeah. of the show. So talk us through, you know, when it, Quail appeared as a star in this film and what it means to these landowners because that was some of the tearful moments. Yeah, right? well, you know, episode one's in Woodville, Mississippi, and both mm-hmm. both farm families love quail. The farm family that's conventional, the son, Wallace, in his 40s, He's a quail hunter. He's an avid quail hunter, and he has to drive to Texas to hunt quail. When, when his mom was a kid, there was quail everywhere. In the sa- you know, and they live exactly in the same spot. His, his, he's like fifth generation. Mm-hmm. And so what's changed? Why is that? I think we could, we could talk long and hard about why that is, but it is what it is. Yet, right across the fence their neighbor who's doing amp grazing has a lot of quail. Here's quail all day, front of the farm, back of the farm, all day long. And there's just a fence between the two properties. Mm -hmm. So that is a piece of data. That's just data. Mm -hmm. So then we moved into um, Alabama and we kept hearing about quail from different farmers. And then when we get up to Fort Payne where where Teddy Gentry and his cousin Randy Owen, who's the lead singer for Alabama, you know, quail's really important to them. Yeah, they both. And and uh, we heard quail on one side of the fence, the amp side, and we didn't hear quail on the other side of the fence. And the only difference between their grazing methods is the way they're grazing. I mean, the only difference between their land management right. is how they're There's grazing. There's a lot of grass difference there. <clears throat> yeah. And, and that's just data. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so... That's what we found. We go into Kentucky, same situation. And so it just became very clear that whatever's happening on the amp side of the fence, more forage, mm-hmm. more places to hide. You guys know quail better than I do, but ground nesting, they are ground nesting. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, if you don't have a lot of forage on the ground, there's no place to be safe. Mm-hmm. And that's really the difference between the two sides of the fence is the height of the forage. Uh, the amp grazers will let their grasses grow to waist height mm-hmm. and the conventional grazers sometimes as folks describe it you can't hide a golf ball mm-hmm. and, and that and that's that again that adaptive multi-paddock multi-paddock is just breaking up those pastures into smaller components to get the impact uh, that peter talked about of a more natural uh former bison kind of centric grazing system and adaptive is um it's not fixed, right? It's Ever. going to be smaller and larger at different times of the year. But the bottom line is there's also a lot more ground that's being rested a lot longer. That's the game. By having the concentration in smaller areas. So there's all these other places. The film focuses a lot, obviously, on where the cattle are grazing or where they've just moved into. There's other chunks of ground that have been rested. Yeah. Um, and well, have. It's like we say in the narration yeah. where most of the land is resting most of the time. That's mm-hmm. that's what's happening on the amp side. And more of the land or much more of the land, depending on the farmers, being grazed on the other side of the fence. The animals have a much larger area to keep going and picking. And in mm-hmm. the amp side, they're much more controlled. So my perception, and tell me if you think I'm 
if I perceive this the way you want it or it's correct. Um, you came to the idea of this film as a solution for climate change, mm -hmm. which the data clearly shows proper amp grazing mm -hmm. can be a solution for all sorts of things, including carbon sequestration. Yep. Not a single landowner that participated. I, I didn't get the sense that they gave much of a rip about climate change. Maybe a little bit, but they were, m like, I would yeah. put financial um, sustainability or financial viability is number one. Mm -hmm. And then it appeared quail was the emotional trigger for multiple of them that actually was the catalyst for change. Yeah. Yeah. Is that accurate? I think quail is a huge catalyst for change for the folks who didn't have them on their land. They're mm -hmm. like, I want them. How do I get them? Right. Um, but even within those families, uh, I think the carbon and the water infiltration were also motivating factors. Um, so I think, I think quail and birds became a bigger motivating factor than we ever anticipated. And I think that that shows how much people love birds. Mm. And uh, certainly we have birders on our team mm -hmm. and our bird team. They love birds. They got tattoos of birds on their yeah. bodies. <laughs> yep. um, but for, for the rest of us who just didn't know the bird world well, learning mm. as we go, that was a real eye-opener for mm. us. And that was an, actually was an eye-opener for the bird team. They didn't think there would be such a distinction on that fence line mm. as there was. Mm. And, and yeah, one of your data points was like three, literally three birds on the conventional grazing. And I think it was 196 on the three. And it was three birds that were grassland birds on one side of the fence on the conventional. And on the adaptive side, there was 194, 194. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. And, and that's the population. And then the species numbers, I think there was two species of in those three birds. Yeah, I think there's there two, two species. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's seven or nine species on the 194. Yep. And uh, on that farm that had the 194, when we first scouted it, we flushed out a whole bobolink mm. society at one point. Right. Just, just 20 of them. I just, think that was in episode two, maybe. That wasn't in the film at all. That oh, just really? happened I when we were scouting. So, okay, okay. That, that just happened when we were scouting. Um, huh. These bobolinks just were like... So maybe through yeah. my lens, you know, the, the, the farmer's interest was there around carbon and mm -hmm. climate and water, but <laughs> which I'm guilty of watching it through the lens of a bird hunter yeah. and dog mm -hmm. owner. But but clearly, quail were a motivation, motivating no question. factor. No yeah. question. Huh? And it was it was uh, to me a beautiful, happy surprise. Mm -hmm. So the the carbon for those folks, it came down to the soil health, the nutrients in the soil. Mm -hmm. And to be able to show you, Peter, you said the only thing being done was differently on one side of the fence than the other was the grazing. Yep. But going along with that grazing was also on the traditional standpoint, a lot more money going into fertilizer. Sure. A lot more money they're growing their own hay. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. they had to shock this, add that to the system. Yep. And so then showing, you know, those folks that were adding that to the system still had less of it in the soil than yeah. people that were saving all that, money and all that time yeah on the nitrogen side yeah so in those applications there was more nitrogen in the soil on the amp side of the fence even though the conventional farmers were adding nitrogen at a high cost on on their side of the fence there was actually more usable nitrogen in the soil on the folks who weren't spending all that money 
because they were getting nitrogen from the urine, from the animals, and from the just the mm -hmm. natural systems that were happening. So and that's that's that service again. If you're managing mm -hmm. things in that way, it's yep. providing it's it's improving the nutrients in the soil health or. And they're going somewhere and buying it and applying it yeah. to get what you need there. And they're getting it from nitrogen-fixing plants that they also have in their in their soils that they plant. You know, it, it's it's not just nature. They are planting species that they want. They're giving a whole to establish cocktail the forage. Mix. Yeah, that's yeah. that's good for the livestock, good for the soil. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we were saying today in our conversation here at, at Quail Forever that wouldn't it be cool if they put even more. Um, uh, uh, native species into yeah. their forage. Yeah. And that's a question we have as a science team. You know, could those pastures have even more native species in the mix? And would that be nutrient, would the nutrient density for the animals be good? And uh, we, we have an idea of what it would do for, for wildlife species because they like those and That's where species. a lot of our, yeah, team's focus is, is providing the support for native forages that, that, tagline what's good for the bird is good for the herd but again saying mm -hmm. it can be uh not not everywhere not across all their scope of operations but providing a a role in some area for those native forages can be really valuable if you get your other management practices and the right uh, breed of livestock mm -hmm. and there's no doubt that that becomes a really important component for habitat uh, for quail and other wildlife it, another piece that it, it felt like you were just starting to get some data here, but maybe not fully fleshed out. And I think it was in episode two and four, and that's about the some of the weed species and the bugs and maybe potentially medicinal qualities for um, disease prevention that just, you know, that all these cattle are eating a very biodiverse mix of grass and weeds, and they didn't have to be treated in the same way uh, medically that the conventional cattle. Did I pick up on that accurately? Yeah, in the film itself, we don't talk a lot about uh, the medical costs going down for the amp farmers, yep. but that's something that's in a lot of my short films up to this point, and it's, 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 um, it's something we talk to the filmers, the, I'm sorry, it's something we talk to the farmers about, but that just didn't make the film itself. But what you're also referring to is what Alan Williams, when he's out teaching the conventional farmers, yeah. What is amp grazing? He's talking about the weeds mm -hmm. that are actually just the word weed is just a human definition, right? Yeah, it carries negative connotation, yeah. and unfortunately. It's, and it's also incredibly nutrient dense for the animals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he argues that it's not a weed if it's forage. And so getting the farmers to understand or to, to think about, hey, that plant right there that you've have been told as a weed and that you spray and kill and that cost you money and time, it's actually really good for the animal mm -hmm. and it's good for the animal to eat. And it's also good for this ecosystem. If, if those yeah. animals have all those choices to eat, because yeah. the more biodiverse your forage is, the more biodiverse your microbial life is. And when your microbial life is biodiverse and pumping, that's your engine for your yeah. whole farm. And it works. That's a benefit for everything that lives on that piece of land. When, you put up the amp and the conventional side by side neighbor. What I think about it's so visual as a movie maker, filmmaker, mm -hmm. right? It's really good, isn't it? Right, because I mean, you like okay, this is very intuitive visually. But does the data support it? Is the data going to support it? But then you, you know, well, we'll, we spent years not knowing. Yeah, but intuitively, 
Yeah, but we had to get the data. Yeah. I mean, intuitively, people would have done this 20 years ago yeah. with that definition. Well, and, and for your... True. For True, your because, but visually, it sets up the film. Yeah, but, but, it's, but you... You go visit these farms, you see a difference. And, and you, you, you backed it up with... Michigan State University, Arizona Go State Green. University. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I mean, there was like University six. of Illinois, Colorado State, University of Arkansas, Exeter, out of the UK, um, and then USDA ARS, and then a, like three private entities, company called AES, which is now part of RES, mm. uh, Ecdysis, which is a, a, a research farm in, in, in South Dakota. And so... These groups all came together for this project, and the yeah. scientists all came together for this project because we all wanted to learn what's happening at the system level. You know, all of those scientists were specialists in their particular field, but what's happening on the system level? And the, the cool thing, Bob, so first of all, for your listening audience, when you talk about viewing, you know, the episode four, what Peter does really well, well, throughout all the episodes, there's really great visuals, there's mm -hmm. animation, there's breaking down the science in episode four into individual figures you can see the results what the results on the screen in a short bit of time the other thing though is you you show meeting with in most cases those amp and traditional uh producers at the same time yeah. showing them the visuals mm -hmm. that you're sharing with the viewing audience and then asking for their reaction mm -hmm. what they think yeah um, and it's really powerful. Another layer within that is reaching back to those scientists then mm -hmm. and having them comment because there's the comment that so many of them, you know, we're in a lab, we're behind a computer. Yeah, we go out in the field and collect some stuff, but there's very little time that they have to engage with the audience that ha that can stand to learn from and think about how to change their habits from this. And, and that's this why is the just farmers such a neat process to bring all that together. And that's why the farmers love being out on the farms. And so any scene we had with a farmer and a scientist talking, you know, I said to to the folks who I was working with who were editing, I'm like highlight those because those are great moments. And so in episodes one, two, and three, when we're out in the field, the scientist and the farmers. Anytime you got mm -hmm. that interaction. Mm -hmm. So we always tried to use those as the beginning of a chapter. If you can ever have a farmer or a scientist out in the field lead us into the next part of the story, mm -hmm. let's use those natural moments. And, and that's, we use that a lot. And then in episode four, we had to wait years to get the data. Mm -hmm. And even within the beginning of episode four, I still had to wait two more years to get the rest of the data. Yeah, this is, I don't and know if we've said it, it's a 10-year project. It's there. a 10-year project from when we started at the end of 2013 to now. And yeah. is, you know, another thing that I appreciated is you you didn't run away from any conflicts. And what I'm thinking about is um, you have a, you're a soil scientist who I'll describe as sort of the... Um, idealist biologist, right? It, Jonathan Lundgren. L Did I say that right, Lundgren? John Lundgren is our bug scientist. Bug scientist. All yeah. right, sorry. But you you and Jonathan in episode three have mm -hmm. a very um, – you have a debate around funding sources yeah. paying for this. Yeah. He, he has a real hard time from corporate funding, and I went to the corporations on purpose. Because if, if, and so that's a difference of opinion, a difference mm -hmm. of heart. And um, I didn't realize he was struggling with that as much as he was. And that's what we talk about in the film. Um, you know, and, and uh, for me, I went to big companies because 
if we don't change big companies, then things don't get changed. We need mm-hmm. the scale. We need them to be on board. And there's no guarantee that the big companies that help fund us, like McDonald's and other companies, there's no guarantee they're going to change. They certainly did amazing work by funding this science. Mm-hmm. To me, that's that's a a huge thing that is a it, it's like a great benefit that they've offered the world. McDonald's has done a great service to science by helping us do the science we're doing. Um, but we don't know if if any of the companies we work with are actually going to change the way they work with their farmers or you know work in their supply chain. You know, big companies don't necessarily touch farmers. It's like the big companies work with the companies who. Mm-hmm. touch the farmers There's a lot of links in that chain yeah, a lot of links in that chain out to the table um but we hope that you know as we can get the film out there and show support for these ideas that that'll give companies the comfort to know that people want this right consumers will drive it consumers and, that, f- and farmers mm-hmm. and and true you know when i meet a farmer and you know we could see it with wallace wallace ferguson and how he responds to Alan Williams coming out and teaching him just, it's just a couple of hours that he's out there in the field with Wallace. And Wallace is like, I didn't know this stuff. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had ever taken the time to show me my soil, to measure the temperature of my soil with plants covering it. And then with just exposed soil on a sunny morning and see that it's 30 degrees different. Yeah. That's a very dramatic component of the film. And, and that's, you know that's just not done enough mm-hmm. for Alan and Gabe Brown and all the folks in their groups you know understanding ag and soil health academy that's what they do every day mm-hmm. right that's normal operating procedure let's measure your soil temperature let's see what your ground cover is and um it's just it's just not as normal as it needs to be but when a farmer finds out that their soil is exposed to the sun killing its microbes versus covered up it's very logical decision at mm-hmm. that point. I want my soils to be covered up. I want my microbes to be thriving. I understand now. Thank you for telling me. I understand how important that is to my farm. And and you talk about that the the concept of those microbes, you know, seeming to be Evan seems to suggest that they are they are fixing all of that into the soil. That's what's providing a uh, accelerated rate of fixing carbon into the soil. They are carbon. It's increasing the yep, increasing yeah, the, s- the health of the soil. It's increasing the productivity and of, the cycling yep. of the carbon. Yeah. And and you know, it's not that you want the carbon to stay on the soil permanent. There's nothing permanent in nature. But as long as you have more carbon in the soil system working mm. like a good bank account versus more carbon in the atmosphere working which is then warming us beyond where we want to be warming. It's like we have carbon in the atmosphere. We're happy it's there to a point. And then all of a sudden it gets a little bit too hot. Like we're in Minnesota right now. We're being told that this is the worst air in the country right now mm. because of the forest fires in mm-hmm. Canada that are probably at least a c- contributing factor to those forest fires is the warming climate. Mm. And, you know, the entire U.S. right now is under a blanket of smoke from Canada. And and so it, it, it affects everybody. Yeah. It affects everybody. But on that point of accepting funding from some of these corporate yep. you know entities, we we deal with some of the same questions. We're building partnerships to try and grow our programs. But Bob, as you mentioned, there's not many of the not many of these producers were motivated by what can I do to help with 
climate change. And, and even Which if they thought that, exactly, I've got no problem with and that. And even if they thought they could, it's, you know, it's my farm. It's just my farm, right? The solutions are some of the folks that are heavily motivated by, motivated by climate change are some of the consumers and investors in these companies. And companies are making some pretty major commitments around carbon mm-hmm. and climate. Yeah. And that's where the intersection comes in. Same yeah. thing. If there is funding needed to make that transition, they have made it commitments. Um, some of what they could do is changing their own business practices to emit less, but they have to go down to the impacts that they have on the ground with mm-hmm. the way operations work and find ways to help incentivize, to help provide assistance, work with partners like us uh, that can help change that practice. Um, and, and that is, you know, for watching this film, that is the biggest deliverable is amp grazing's benefit for carbon sequestration as being a carbon sink as opposed to being, you know, putting carbon into the atmosphere. I mean, if I recall correctly, this could be one third of the solution towards mitigating climate change. And I know I'm throwing out a very generic stat, but tell us in your words what this means. So what we needed to look at was not just carbon dioxide, uh, but also methane, Mm -hmm. because everyone knows cows emit methane. And nitrous oxide, a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about nitrous oxide, but nitrous oxide and CO2, carbon dioxide, are long-lived greenhouse gases. CO2 could be up there for hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. And nitrous oxide is 250 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than CO2, Mm. and it's a long-lived gas. Then you've got methane that, you know, it lasts between 10 and 20 years on average, so it's potent. It's about 25 times more powerful than, than carbon dioxide on some accounting methods. And it lasts for 10 to 20 years. So a lot of people think that if we just focus on methane and really focus on methane, then we can give ourselves a leg up to slowing down climate change while the carbon and the nitrous oxide and all the other greenhouse gases and all the other energy sources and everything else can be worked on. But that's, that's just looking at methane is not looking at the system. A, a, a farm system is, you know, especially an amp system, is drawing down enormous amounts of carbon while the methane emissions are happening, while the nitrous oxide emissions are happening. So we looked at all three greenhouse gases, and we're not saying that cattle uh, don't emit methane. We're saying cattle do emit methane, mm-hmm. although on the amp side, it was about 10% less methane mm-hmm. um, than the conventional side in our data. But that if you look at the whole that amp grazing is a massive greenhouse gas sink, mm. looking at all three of those. And, and so that's the story for me is you, look, you have to look at all those gases if you're talking about a farm system. Right. If you're talking about methane emissions from an oil and gas operation, yeah, that's methane. There it is. It's being leaked out or flared out of that smokestack yep. out in the field. Um, but when you're talking about a farm, you have three greenhouse gases mainly. So you have to look at all three and then see what the net effect is. What's the net effect? And in our study, it's a massive net effect that amp grazing is a greenhouse gas sink. And so um, that's just the data. Mm-hmm. There it is. 
Yeah, and you extrapolate that out across the country. So when I was extrapolating just the carbon at the beginning of the movie, there's three and a half billion tons of grazing land on Earth. This is land that is grassland, pasture land. It's not farmland. It's land that's that's been grazed for millennia and long, you know, many, Mm -hmm. many millennia, millennia, (laughs) millennia. And if you could get one ton of carbon added to that 3.5 billion hectares, then that would equal about a third of all human emissions annually. That's what that, that's that's what that data point is. And so of that 3.5 billion hectares of grazing land, you will have grazing land that will not get that much carbon drawn down. It's too dry. But you will also have a lot of grazing land that could draw down a lot more than mm-hmm. that. Um, in our study, just looking at the carbon, uh, we saw five tons of carbon coming down annually in in, in Alabama. Um, and so, so that it was just a stat to show the potential to get that many farmers and ca- ranchers to change is a massive mm-hmm. uh, undertaking. But the potential is a real potential to actually realize it is insane amount of work that I feel is pretty good use of my time. Yeah. The movie successfully or the, the documentary four parts successfully do that. So how do people watch it? Like what's the next step? Yeah, because so we've talked a lot about a film that nobody's been able to see. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you go to our website, if I may, yeah, carboncowboys.org, um, you'll be able to see the trailer. You'll be able to sign up to our newsletter and you'll be able to request a screening wherever you're at. Okay. And so we're on the road right now. We're doing our hometown road show. We want to show the film to as many people out in the country in barns and theaters and everything in between. Um, and so that's what we're doing right now. Our goal is to eventually have a streaming deal so where everyone can see it all over the planet. Mm. Uh, but we felt it was really important to take the film on the road to be our own film festival hmm. which is how a lot of films get known and get seen i mean a lot of films series a lot of documentary series what's v- the much more normal route is that a film company would go to a streamer and say we want to make this series the streamer then says well here's a little money to prove if this is a valuable concept and if you do that, then they say, okay, here's the budget. So you always know that that's your distribution yeah. because they paid for it. Mm-hmm. We didn't feel like our concept would have been strong enough beginning with this because we didn't know the science results. We didn't mm. know anything. Wow. This was a completely on-spec speculative thing. We didn't know if the science would prove anything. We didn't know if farmers would change or not. We didn't know what kind of footage we were going to get. We couldn't guarantee anything because we just didn't know. So it was a huge gamble. Um, and so that's why I have gray hair. And <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like it's paid off, the gamble? I feel like it's paying okay. off. Um, the I, streaming component is... Well, I feel like we've made a good film, mm-hmm. a good series. No doubt about that. Now we have to be as good at promoting it as we were at making it. Mm. And then that will be payoff. Gotcha. Um, when we have farmers come to our screenings and want to change by actually coming to the screening, that's payoff. Mm. And we've had that. We're having it every screening. It's, it's, it's more than I hoped for. We had it in Edinburgh, Scotland. I did a presentation, farmers change. We did it in Chattanooga, farmers change, young and old. Mm. And so, um, so to continue that, 
and to continue the opportunity of being able to show it to, con- to farmers to say, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And to have them go, I want to know more about this. Help me out. That's, that's payoff. A 10-year project. I'm yeah. sure you've laid up at night, you oh. know, year seven, year eight. Oh, God, why didn't I think about doing that? Yeah. No. I, I, what, I, is there something that I've sticks seen, out in your mind? I've seen so many three o'clocks in the morning yeah, I bet. on this project that I didn't see before this project. I'm, just the truth. Yeah. Um, every step of the way have been enormous challenges. It's, it's yeah. been amazing, really. Yeah. Um, and as a friend of mine on the team says, well, look at how much you've learned. And he's right. Yeah. He's absolutely right. Um, you know, you all know how important your funders are, uh, to your work. And, and one of the key funders to our work is a a beautiful family out of Chicago and the, the couple Jim and Paula Crown, or Jim would make sure I said Paula and Jim Crown, um, have been supporting us and been friends to us and advisors and, and everything since 07. We lost Jim last Sunday. Oh gosh, and um, hmm. it's hard. Hmm. He he was so important to us and such a good guy. And you read in the papers, he's he's a well-known guy. Um, just look up Jim Crown, and you'll see. I am one of many who are shocked and heartbroken right now to mm. have lost him. And I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that right now, and 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 uh, to just say thank you to to Paula and Jim Crown, and to thank you, Jim Crown. Um, I wouldn't be here without him. Uh, his support and his advice and is, is, is like kind and wise, you know, that's, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and used his, used his ability to help people. What was his generous. motivation? I think he just liked the work we were doing. Hmm. And I think, I think he felt better and felt hope with the work we were doing. Um, and he told me that. He said our work gave him hope because mm. um, he was very, very worried about climate change. Yeah. And, and to see that there's solutions that are so beneficial. And he liked that I talked to the big companies. He, he, yeah. he liked that. He thought the pragmatic approach was the approach to get to scale. And, um, and, and he was celebrating his 70th birthday with his family and was at this private race car track in Colorado. And and there was an accident and he didn't make it. Oh gosh. And and so there like I said there's a heck of a lot of people in shock right now. Mm. And and so our funders, our supporters, the folks who've helped us get through um have been just such good friends of this project. And so there's been nights where I'm three o'clock in the morning grateful for these folks. Mm-hmm. There's nights at three o'clock in the morning where I'm like, did that scientist really say what they just said to me? <laughs> um, there's times at three o'clock in the morning, it's like, okay, so where am I going to find the second and third year's funding for this? We've started, mm-hmm. we've made a commitment and we don't have all the funding. So we better find it. Right. Um, will the farmers say yes to me filming them? I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Will all the farmers say yes to us doing the science? I didn't know that when we had started. Hmm. I'm talking about like a lot of risk, mm-hmm. and um, hmm. and luckily I'm at a university that thrives with risk. Hmm. Arizona State University, you know, they let me do this, and they never said no. I never asked. 
<laughs> I never asked for permission to do this, okay. and they, they never, never said, said no. no. <laughs> and that's how I'm here 10 years later. Huh. <laughs> right? And that's, that's Michael Crow. That's the president of the university, and he, mm-hmm. he's just a leader. He's, he's, he lets people do stuff. Mm. And um, so, yeah, so, you know, the bird data is one of the highlights for me in this whole 10-year process because I just didn't know it was going to be like that, mm. and I just didn't know how impactful that would be for the farmers. I didn't know. Mm. Um, we thought water would be the most impactful thing. Uh, beyond all the research, beyond all the survey carbon. research would say that. Beyond carbon. We knew we were doing it for carbon and greenhouse gases. That was our motivation. We thought water would be the thing that would sort of cut across the, do you believe in climate change? Do you think climate change is a hoax? And everything in between. Yeah. Um, the birds showed up and then sort of, took their own journey yeah and and um and that's why i'm here on this podcast with you guys what what have you what surprise has surprised you about bird hunters and organizations like ours anything that's come to mind like huh did you even know we existed before i did not know you existed Mm -hmm. before uh until until brad emailed me and introduced me to brent um i have always thought that hunters who hunt for food are a hell of a lot braver than I am. (laughs) Because I eat meat, but I've never purposefully killed an animal to eat it. And I think a lot of hunters that I've met are surprised that I feel that. Hmm. Like that I have, it's from a place of respect as opposed to a place of judgment. Sure. Mm -hmm. And that's been an interesting bunch of conversations I've had over the years. Um, I have never hunted myself. Hmm. Um, and that's just who I am. But if something that is beneficial to an entire group of people Mm -hmm. who want habitat for quail and pheasant to exist is the same solution that gets me to sleep at three Oh five at night, right? Because I'm worried about climate change and, you know, water cycling and farmer well-being, then that's gotta be a pretty interesting, compelling solution. Um, I don't need to agree with everybody on everything. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I like celebrating differences. Mm-hmm. I like that. I don't want to be known as only this or only that. I have farmers in this study. We vote very differently in the polling booth, <laughs> and we enjoy each other's company. Yeah. And and, uh, and that's 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 wonderful, right? It's because it's we, what it's supposed to be. It, it, absolutely, we've gotten away from that sort yeah, of mentality this, in this culture. This black and white thing. Yankees versus Mets. It's well, that's world. different. Yeah, but, but um, it, I mean, it what, shouldn't be like it, that, it, though, right? I, well, what you just said is where I think it exists, and it's good. Let's have the sports rivalries. Sure. I'm from Kentucky, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> the Louisville Cardinals are my team. Uh-huh. I say Louisville, so you guys know what I'm saying. It's Louisville. Louisville. <laughs> right. And then the University of Kentucky is not my team. Yep. Right? We have a beautiful rivalry. We have a rivalry so strong that we didn't play for 25 years. Yep. Now, find me another rivalry of any sport <laughs> on earth where they didn't play each other. Huh. And had no plans to play each other, except we met in the NCAA tournament, so we had to. They used to have that in baseball, you know, Did they? The American oh, well, League and in National, National League, League yeah. and they've all screwed that up now. But yeah. I'm sorry, I <laughs> no, digress. No, that's a good point. So that you're, you're educating me to, on, that, on that rivalry piece there. But I like talking to someone who thinks differently than me. I actually get to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, 
And but we 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 know we have differences. Um, but we could spend all day talking about soil health. Mm-hmm. We could spend all day talking about wildlife habitat. And where we have differences, we can listen to each other as well. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I like. That's what my film work is about. Is about hearing that other stuff. Yeah. Um, I've got family members tell me. You know, the ones who want to fight about it, it's not as fun for me. The ones who want to talk about it and let me understand what they're coming from, I'll, I'll, I'll actually have a chance of hearing them and learning something. The ones who want to fight, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts of farmers on this project that we have differences of opinions. And um, I like that. Well, your films have done a great service. Oh, thank you. For quail. <laughs> quail hunting. Sincerely. Oh, that's awesome. It's... Um, I laughed. I cried. <laughs> it was a triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> uh, I, I sincerely love it. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Bob White? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, closing thoughts. Brent, I, you know, I kind of dominated the questions. I no, apologize. that's all right. Yeah. That's well, job. you know, I should, we, we should point out, obviously, uh, we've done a lot of work celebrating our team that provides a lot of technical assistance, lines growers up with financial mm-hmm. assistance through programs. And as you know, Bob, the Farm Bill Biologist Program has grown to, you know, around 270 folks now that are out there serving the needs of growers, um, 35 different states, I think. So wow. it's big. It's a fun s- fact for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I've, I brought this up on most podcasts, but you haven't heard it. Um, next to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Our organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, have the second most biologists on staff, private lands biologists on staff, than any other entity in the country. That's awesome. Which means we talk to a lot of landowners. Well, let's start showing my film all over the place. That's with right. You guys, is, let's do it together. Yep. So that's a, that's a great resource. Um, there's a subset of those folks that are specifically dona- uh, dedicated to supporting grazing programs. Um, and then sometimes there's a farm bill biologist that might do row crop work right. or they do some grazing work and they do any combination of, so, but the key is, you know, making sure folks realize, and w- we think there's a lot of potential, there's discussion about more investment, more effort within farm bill programs to be sure that there's resources available for adopting, um, changing practices and grazing. So happy to look at opportunities. The bottom line is that there's more people saying, Hey, we want to try this. We need the support then through donations, through corporate partnerships, through shifting emphasis on some of these programs. Um, we'll find whatever way we can to build the capacity to, to do more of that and, you know, to make more quail and pheasants <laughs> in the process. It, 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 Peter eloquently talked about the need for funders, right, and yeah. sus- sustainability. So if folks want, to, whether they're companies or just people, that want to learn more about sustainability, how do they connect with you, Brent? Uh, email address would be B Rudolph. As in the reindeer? As in the reindeer, R-U-D-O-L-P-H, at pheasantsforever.org or at quailforever.org. Either one will get to me, and I'm always happy to hear folks that have uh, ideas or have support they can offer. And Peter, you, you did mention a short while ago the website, but yeah. you know, folks want to it's uh, connect. Car- yeah, it's carboncowboys.org and info at carboncowboys.org will get you to us. And if you want to set up a screening or see our trailer or find out more about the project, 
it's all there. The research is there and everything else is there as well. In, in a closing thought, if... And we also are on social. So if you go oh, Facebook yeah. at Carbon Cowboy, you know, Facebook forward slash Carbon Cowboys, Twitter at Carbon Cowboys. And, that and you're on Twitter. Yeah, as at well. Peter Bick as well. Um, and that's B-Y-C-K. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, closing thoughts. The final word's all yours. Nature is powerful. It's 3.2 billion years of R&D since, you know, things started burping out oxygen for us to breathe. Let's use nature as the way we run our agriculture because we're using nature. Let's don't fight it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of solutions will come out of that. Yeah, well said. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thank you. Folks, um, thank you very much for listening. Go check out the website, carboncowboys.org. Um, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you, always follow the dog. Something good will rise, including Bob White quail out of some amp-grazed ra- rangeland. Bob White? Bob White. <laughs> Thanks, folks. Thank you.